um, I actually Googled a few, kind of some combination of the words international, apostle, apostolic, ministry, commissioning, and I found like three places that if I paid like at least 500 bucks, I could just be conferred the title of apostle, right? I can just, I can just apply, and then they would, you know, pray and discern whether or not I was an apostle, but surprise, surprise, it'll always come back positive. And I can get a little certificate saying that from this International Apostolic Institute, I've been given, I've been um, uh, conferred, and it's been confirmed that I am a 21st century apostle. And they, and they use that word very, very um, strategically. Now, the, the largest and most influential network, and I want to say network, because it's not really a church, and it's not really a, um, a denomination. It's just kind of a loose network of people who uh, believe this is called the New Apostolic Reformation. And the New Apostolic Reformation comes from a person that I actually went to a conference of his once, Peter Wagner. He died two years ago in 2016, but I went to a Peter Wagner spiritual warfare conference in Kingston, Ontario, at a Pentecostal church there in like the 90s, and um, early, early mid-90s. And we were learning all about the spiritual warfare and how to bind demons and uh, spirit, spiritual warfare and spiritual deliverance. And I was like new to it. And I was like, oh, this is super awesome. I totally want to have like Jesus Jedi powers and be like, whoa, whoa. Just like casting things out and healing people. I, I was sincere. And I was like, I want to be used by God. If this power is on access, I totally want a piece of it because I want to do awesome things for God. Peter Wagner in 2001 declared that the 21st century was going to see... Or, sorry, no, he said that um, in 2001, we had entered a new age of the church. It was a new apostolic age, ap apostolic meaning from apostle, a new age that will, that will be defined by a new apostolic movement. And so this new apostolic age, he believed was going to bring about a reformation that was so significant, it would parallel the Protestant Reformation, brought about by Luther and Calvin and then other reformers, in the 16th century. And so Wagner called it the New Apostolic Reformation. That's where the name comes from. He just kind of said, that's what I believe is going to happen. Now, this didn't really come from Wagner's study of scripture, although he taught at Fuller Seminary at the time. It really came from just his experiences and talking to missionaries and praying with other people and kind of looking at church history and inferring patterns, and he just kind of decided to say, I think this is going to happen, and I kind of am confident it's going to happen. And a lot of people just said, wow, that sounds super cool. There, again, there's no grounding in Scripture per se, other than some key words like prophet, apostle, and obviously use Scripture to show, like, the things that were happening in Scripture we're now going to experience now. And then as a general movement, there's a lot of uh, influence within certain churches and within certain teachers where th that are essentially new apostolic reformation or NAR is kind of the short form and these are churches and, and or sometimes they're just parachurch ministries that they promote this idea that there are new apostles they educate people into learning to become an apostle they offer training in apostolic or prophetic literature so for example you can go to Wagner University and get a bachelor degree in apostolic and applied ministry. You can get a master's degree in apostolic and applied ministry. You can get a PhD in apostolic and applied ministry. And you can take courses like, and again, listen to the language, apostolic centers, activating the apostolic, growth dynamics of new apostolic churches, apostolic breakthrough. There's always this connection to the term apostolic. 
You might think that's kind of weird. Why is that a one-trick pony? Why do they keep coming back to that title apostolic? Why are they emphasizing it so much? We'll get to that in a moment. In this university, again, Wagner's not saying in one sense this is all biblical. This is just conjecture that he created in talking to other missionaries, other people who are praying and seeking new revelation about what God is going to be doing into the future. And in these courses, you can learn that there are different kinds of apostles. They list them on their site. This is all from their site. I'm not making this up. You have vertical apostles. There are horizontal apostles. There are ecclesiastical apostles, functional apostles, apostolic team members, congregational apostles. Then under the horizontal apostle heading, you can have convening apostles, ambassadorial apostles, mobilizing apostles, territorial apostles, marketplace apostles. Okay? Nothing except apostle is grounded in scripture. And he would say that. It's just it comes from a vague sense of seeking the spirit, seeking what God is doing, and talking with missionaries all over the world, and then kind of through that, pulling it all together and saying, what's kind of a coherent theological framework? But then the convenient part is Wagner can say, well, it's kind of, it's above criticism because everything that we're talking about and everything that we're labeling is so new that you can't really compare it to anything that's happened before. So it kind of provides an internal mechanism that doesn't allow someone to say, well, that doesn't seem to have any grounding in Scripture. Well, no, because that was God's movement then, and God is doing something new now. So it might be, there might be some overlap of patterns with Scripture, but we don't have to be beholden to Scripture because God's doing a new thing. So when you think of things like university or going to school to learn about apostolic gifting or things like that, you know, a question should arise, can you actually make apostles? Can you train them? Can someone confer a title of apostle? Let's just very quickly look at how apostles are talked about in the New Testament. There are three criteria that everyone in the New Testament who is called an apostle is, uh, they meet all three of these criteria. Now, apostle in the New Testament means sent one in its most basic form, sent one. And I've taught this before. In a lowercase a sense, we are all apostles. We are all sent into the world by Jesus to be missionaries in our families, homes, marketplaces, some overseas missionaries, some just missionaries right in our own backyard. We are all lowercase a apostles. But that is not how people in this movement use that term. They are, we'll, we'll agree that that's part of it, but what they're also trying to pull into the term is that sense of capital A apostle as someone who has a title of unique and authoritative teaching, a, a unique teaching authority within the global church. So they will say, yeah, an apostle means sent one, but it also in the New Testament, which is true, speaks to someone who has unique authority to teach authoritatively to Christians. And Christians should listen to them and, and put more stock in their words than even a pastor or a teacher or just any old Christian because an apostle has an elevated authority to teach things that come directly from God and from the mouth of Jesus himself. So, but in the New Testament, three qualifications for an apostle. Number one, you had to be a physical eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, meaning you had to have seen Jesus in the flesh, not have a vision, not have a dream. He had to have appeared to you in the flesh. Touch, touch his side, you know, hold his hand, eat fish with him. You had to have been a physical eyewitness to the resurrection. Number two, and there's some scriptures there that you need to go and look up to confirm that. Number two, 
you had to have been someone who had been personally appointed to the office of apostleship by Jesus himself, not through another conduit. Paul says in Galatians 1.4, I am an apostle, not an apostle, not a title given by man, but by Jesus himself. Just because someone says, hey, I'm Jeff, I'm this level of apostle, I'm, I'm going to confer an apostleship on someone else, Paul says that doesn't mean anything. My apostolic authority comes from the fact that Jesus himself said, you are now one of my apostles, Paul. And number three, these apostles could regularly, routinely, verifiably, clearly authenticate their office and their apostolic appointment, their authority, through miraculous signs. Wherever they went, they could do things consistently that no other Christian could do. And that was a way, and remember, why, where are these apostles being sent? They're primarily being sent to the lost Jewish people of Israel. Paul becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. The, the original, the 11, and then Matthias, who becomes the 12 replace, replacement for Judas, uh, they go to Israel, to God's people. So it makes sense that God says, I'm going to make sure that I, Jesus says, I'm going to give you signs because you're going to be going to these people and saying, Jesus was the Messiah. And they're going to say, no, he couldn't have been the Messiah. We wanted this in a Messiah. And you're going to say, no, he was resurrected. He's given us new power. He's redeeming Israel. And this is a sign that what I'm saying is true and that I speak on his behalf. I was an eyewitness to him. He appointed me himself. And the power that you see me doing these things isn't because of my greatness. It's because Jesus is confirming in me that I am an actual apostle of him, which, which is ultimately about pointing back to Jesus and saying he is the actual son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the true and living God come to save and rescue us. In Ephesians 2, Paul's explaining to an early group of Christians, he says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers. Everybody's now in a family of God. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of his household. We're one family now, Jew and Gentile, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Paul says, this is what God has done. He's given us a God's building a new temple, a new family. Jesus is the cornerstone. The Old Testament prophets and the new covenant apostles are the foundation. And now you are being built into that house on the cornerstone and foundation as living stones, as witness to this new household and this new movement of God, which I think correctly contravenes any claim that there are later apostles because when you build a house, you don't build multiple levels of foundations. You build a foundation once, and then you build on it, but there's no longer a new foundation, a new wave, because that would either mean the first one was incomplete, but it doesn't even make sense in terms of the building metaphor. So apostles, I think, very clearly as a capital A, were assigned by Jesus to provide authoritative teaching to Christians uh, lead them into, uh, by the Holy Spirit, writing the rest of the New Covenant words of God. And until the Bible is compiled, they needed to have um, authoritative teaching and a line through to be able to say, yeah, this is legit teaching. This comes from a legit source versus all kinds of other ideas that were going around in the New Testament about who Jesus was, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. All the teachings had to be um, connected to an apostle in the first century who had these three criteria. 
Now, that being said, those involved, um, you know, so, so my very, and, and I would want to say, and I, I know I have a microphone, so it doesn't sound very humble. You know, I have all the power in a sense in the room. Um, but I would say any claim to modern day apostleship is, is a false claim. Um, I don't want to necessarily infer what the motives uh, are of the people who would do that, but I would just say, I, I just full stop would say, I don't think there are modern day apostles or prophets in the way that is being used of that term. I, I don't believe there can be because you can't actually fulfill the biblical criteria for them and nor do they fulfill the biblical criteria of being able to work in these signs and wonders with any kind of consistency and verifiability. But they are claiming, as you saw in Wagner's University, apostolic centers, apostolic uh, you know, congregate, everything is tying back to the apostolic. Why? Well, it's very clearly attempting to leverage that biblical word to gain a tremendous amount of influence and authority. Because in that theological paradigm, if you think of the church as a hierarchy, the apostle and prophets would stand at the top. That's why they're obsessed with apostleship or releasing people into apostolic leadership or promoting this theology because those people at the top get to occupy an um, apostolic voice, which gives them within that theological framework, I would argue, uh, unmerited unbiblical amount of influence to speak into the lives of Christians and to speak into the lives of the church. And yet this movement, New Apostolic Reformation, pretty popular. There's, you know, it's, there's probably people in, I don't say every church, but many evangelical churches that read uh, NAR thinkers or leaders or teachers, um, listen to sermons, listen to the music, you know, Bethel Church, International House of Prayer, certain elements of uh, Youth with a, with a Mission, YWAM. I'm not calling those out. I mean, th there's tons of um, people that are connected to these things. And again, I'm not, I don't want to paint a broad brush and say, oh, they're all, uh, you know, I, sometimes you hear people talking about these people like they're not even Christians and they're, uh, they're completely under the power of, of, um, of Satan. And I think that's a bridge too far. But I think we should be able to, as Christians, look at movements and people who consistently teach something and say, that's not biblical, and that's not being petty or malicious or anything. That's just hopefully being a good Berean and evaluating people's claims based on Scripture and having the courage of conviction to say, you can throw those big Bible words around, but I, I don't accept it. And I actually think that it's dangerous to be trying to co-opt that language. And I'll talk about that why in a second. Now, I understand why it's very seductive as a church leader, as a pastor, to lean into this kind of theological paradigm. In my book, I wrote about the three great arenas of temptation that everybody in this room is going to face multiple times. These, these are the arenas that you will be fighting towards holiness for with the power of God's Spirit helping you for between now and when you um, go to heaven or Jesus returns. And that is the arenas of money, sex, power. Those are just the main arenas of discipleship where you have to struggle more than any other arena to honor God with your life. And they, these are also arenas that every single human being wants results in. We want results in, in the area of money. We want results in the area of sex and pleasure and, and sensual satisfaction. We want results in the area of power. And in general, the average person, whether in, and certainly if they're not a Christian, they haven't, been, haven't had God's spirit begin to redeem their desires, 
everybody wants three of those things in as much, <laughs> uh, yeah, they want to accrue as much of those things as possible. More money would be a better life. More sex and sexual pleasure, that would be a better life. More power, awesome, makes my life awesome. Who wouldn't want more of those things? And while the prosperity gospel, people who talk about, in a character, you know, a bit of a caricature, God's a, a, a means to which for you to experience material blessing, that's the whole gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. If you turn your life over to God, he will bless you, and if you're obedient, you'll just get richer and richer and richer and more prosperous. Just like the prosperity gospel holds out the temptation to view God as a vehicle through which to accrue money and material prosperity, I think a lot of this new apostolic reformation holds out the temptation to see God as a vehicle through which to accrue power and influence and worldly power and influence. To be at the top of the pyramids in the church, yeah, for sure, but then at the top of the pyramids in arts and entertainment and in banking and in education and in all the spheres that the people look at and say, wow, if we just, if I could be at the top of the pyramid or even in a well-meaning way, if Christians could be at the top of the pyramid, then the king, then we'd really be running on all cylinders. Then the kingdom of God would totally come if we were just all in positions of power, using that power for, for Jesus, for sure, but definitely we need those positions of power. And I understand that as a leader, ministry in general is very, very seductive. When you teach people, when God uses you to change people's lives, it becomes very tempting to have an inflated view of yourself. Your self-importance can grow. And in almost every human hierarchy, it's natural to want to clamor towards the top. Because if you get to the top of the hierarchy, that's where you get the most prestige and possessions. That's where you get the most privileges. That's where you get access to the most authority. Because you're over so many people. And what can start as a good motivation to want to be over people in order to positively point them towards Jesus. The Christian church and 20th century and 21st century evangelicalism is a very important case study in how that good desire can get distorted very quickly. And you, you can begin leveraging that place of power for nothing other than your own name and to exalt your own name and your own agenda. And it is only very tangentially tethered to something nebulous like the kingdom of God or for God's glory. And I understand the people who are drawn to this movement. I was one of those people. If the NAR would have been around when I was 16 or 17 or 18, I would have been like, this is awesome. And it would have been sincere. Not everybody, but a lot of people who are drawn to this movement or to people who kind of swim in these theological boundaries and frameworks are young people. And I understand that as a young person, you know, there's, um, there's this really, you're in a really narrow demographic between somewhere in like 16 to 25 if you're a young Christian where a few things are happening all at once. You absolutely want to change the world. You want to serve Jesus with your whole heart and be used of God powerfully. You deeply desire that. You don't want to waste your life. You also want access to power and influence. 16, 17, 18, 20, 22, those are years of unbelievable vulnerability. What am I going to be when I grow up? How am I going to make it work? I'm leaving childhood. I'm entering adulthood. That is scary. I want to hide and run. I want power. I want closure. I want clear direction. 
I want to deal with this vulnerability by having access to something that says I can be confident and I can be sure and I know where I'm going. And then we're often still immature enough to want access to that authority and access to that privilege very quickly without having to go through the testing and the trials and the suffering that will actually make you, on the level of your character, able to bear that responsibility well, genuinely, for God's glory. So there's a whole conflation of a number of forces that come together that make it very appealing for someone to hear this news that they can have power and do these demonstrably awesome things that are just, like, generally awesome that allow you to ascend even if it's a vague sense of a Christian hierarchy of being like really powerfully used of God and then along with it not always often is also smuggled in by the way one of the cool things about getting to the top of the authority and power hierarchy is you also get the prosperity and the wealth thrown in as well you're not chasing it. It's all about serving God and, and bringing your authority to bear and bringing heaven to earth and diff- all kinds of different language. But it's also tempting because many of the people who are spearheading this movement do not live lifestyles that are congruent with any level of even a generous sense of Christian freedom to be above reproach. And right, like if this church, let's say, was really doubling down on generosity and saying, we want to pay our pastors super, super, super well, to me, and just say, we want to make a statement to this community and to the world, and we're just going to go above and beyond, to me, and I thought about this, uh, honestly, if you went to, like, right around, like, the six-figure income, like $99,000 a year, $100,000, just as a symbolic gesture of, like, we want to be so generous to the pastors who lead and shepherd us, I would be like, wow, that's crazy generous. That is like, you know, there'd certainly be a temptation for me, and I bet you for Rick too, to be like, thanks, but no thanks. Let's renegotiate down for all kinds of different reasons. But, you know, these are people who are not living at even that kind of very blessed and uh, financially secure level. We're talking about people who are in seven figures, eight figures, and again, there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having oodles of money. But there is a responsibility if you are in pastoral leadership and if you are a preacher to make sure that your lifestyle doesn't impede the um, reputation of the gospel. And, I, you know, we can discuss where those lines are. And I'm totally open to it. But I think if all of a sudden you saw me drive up to church in a brand new Bugatti, you're allowed to say, okay, that's a bridge too far. Like that's, yeah, something, we, we, we need to have a new AGM all of a sudden really quick, okay? Now listen, I hope you know from listening to my sermons, we're wrapping up here soon, um, I know that, I hope that you know, it's never been my practice to preach against people. There are people who do that. They preach against Christians or against Christian ministries I think my role as a preacher is to preach the scriptures, to unpack God's truth. However, as a pastor, I do feel I am called to warn people about teachers or about ministries or about leaders that I believe are holding out at least a corrupted understanding of what the Bible teaches, who Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus, what does it mean to walk in the fullness of the Spirit or in obedience to Jesus. I think I'm, I'm obligated to do that. Now, you're free to, you're free to read 
and love and follow and give to whatever ministries you want, but I, as an issue of conscience, want to, uh, when it becomes appropriate, when it emerges from the text like this one did, to sound the alarm on movements that overpromise and underdeliver, that promote things that I think are false, that are unbiblical, that are spiritually harmful, that are a waste of time and money, and that are, whether knowingly or not, manipulative and deceptive. And I don't believe that many of the ministries that are grounded in this have a, have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, the nature of salvation, the nature of discipleship, the biblical witness, the overall momentum of the Old Testament scriptures and stories and the New Testament scripture and story, Old Covenant, New Covenant, how God works, roles in the church. And again, we can agree to disagree, but I want you to be honest so that you know where I stand. And I'm not saying that people who are involved in these things or who read these people or who are a part of these ministries are not sincere. I'm not saying that they aren't really saved and aren't really Christians. I'm not saying that either. Christians can be deceived. I've gone through many seasons in my life where I have followed uh, kind of tracks of teaching and ideas that sounded like they were good or at least enticing to me, and then I just realized, oh, this actually isn't grounded in Scripture. It uses Bible words and uses some Scriptures to its defense, but it's actually misinformed. So I'm not calling these people out as not real Christians or insincere if you read some of these people. I've read uh, a number of their books to try to understand them better. I've listened to lots of sermons. I've done my own homework. But I still would say I just don't think those are arenas that it's wise to swim in. That's the least that I would say. I just don't think it's profitable at all, really. I think there's better people you could be reading, better people you could be listening to, better ministries that you could be supporting. I think alarm bells should go off if people, if someone you know or follow is claiming the mantle of apostle or prophet or talking in some way that there are things that only they can do, there are certain movements of God that only they can impart or they can activate in your life or they can release, I think those are at least yellow flags to really dig into. Can you be clear on what you actually mean by that? Don't fill in those blanks yourself. Make them accountable to be very clear on what those mean, what they mean by that, and where they're rooting it in, in Scripture. I think to not do that and to just kind of lean into, well, that's a big fancy Bible-sounding word, and I don't know much about the Bible, and they are really confident and awesome, so I'm just going to trust them. That is dangerous. That's dangerous to do if I'm teaching you something here on Sunday morning. It's dangerous to do if you're listening to a podcast. It's dangerous to do if you're listening to a, at a Christian conference. No one gets a free pass. Every teacher should be vetted through the Word of God, and there should be a certain level of, I wonder if what Jeff is telling me is totally legit, because Jeff is not an apostle. He's a pastor and teacher who is a redeemed sinner, which means even he is going to teach things that are hopefully not completely heretical, but maybe not worded precisely the right way. And so we get a chance to partner with Jeff and to say, maybe next time you teach on this text, you should place more emphasis here and not here because I'm in process too and I'm learning too. That's why I don't claim apostolic teaching authority over this church. I do my homework, but I also humbly submit it to God and I humbly submit it before you because it's co-accountability because there isn't a tier in the church as it relates to importance or who is more used of God or more loved by God. We are a family. We gather around the Lord's table. It's a great equalizer. I have a different role to play, but I'm not more important in the role of God's kingdom than anybody else in this room or hearing my voice. 
I believe that life and world-changing power is absolutely available to every Christian. I believe in miracles. I believe that God does amazing things. I believe that there is a kind of structure and authority to the church. I, I wouldn't go as far as to talking about horizontal and vertical apostleship and all that stuff. But I believe in limited ecclesiastical authority that is grounded in the word of God. But I think these movements ramp up expectations in areas that are spiritually unhealthy and unbiblical. And I think often, whether they intend to or not, I think many, some of them, well, definitely, I'd say, I'd, I'd go as far as say most of them, do um, take advantage of typically young, passionate Christians who don't have a critical mass of discernment around scriptural ideas and the narrative of scripture to be able to discern and differentiate things that sound true or are mixed with truth. That sounds Bible-ish for sure versus being able to say, oh, that part was biblical. Oh, that has been taken out of context. That we need to excise a little bit or I need to ask more questions about that. And these movements can really draw people in who, again, want to change the world for Jesus and love Jesus but are so hungry and in some ways are so immature or underdeveloped that they can become um, a victim ultimately sometimes to, uh, to the momentum of these ministries. Okay, so to end this whole series, Epilogue of Mark is actually really helpful. It's really inspiring. It has a lot to teach us, even though I wouldn't consider it sacred scripture or divine. I think the scribes did an imperfect but a good job of summarizing the rest of the New Testament. And I think their message is still one that we can heed and we need to respond to. The resurrection is real. Jesus is alive. There are eyewitnesses that will account for it. The truth of who Jesus is, what he lived, what he taught has been confirmed by his resurrection. And the apostolic witness coming from the apostles appointed by Jesus can be trusted. These books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the, the epistles written to other churches, these are the God-breathed authoritative texts through which Jesus designs to form his church as we become conformed into his likeness. And so therefore, go into the world. Go into all of creation and do it with confidence to serve Jesus. Make disciples as you go, into your families, into your marriages, on your sports teams, um, as you go into uh, places near and far. Make disciples. Teach people what it means to follow Jesus. And be, you can be assured if you do that you are a part of a world-changing mission that the forces of death and hell cannot stand against. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks.